Blog Talk Radio. Our guest today is Reverend Robin Riel. Robin is a ordained spiritualist minister and metaphysician through the Fellowship of the Spirit in Lowerdale, New York. Robin serves spiritual churches throughout Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, Indiana, and New York as a lecturer, medium, and spiritualist historian. Today we will be talking about African-American spiritualists who were civil rights leaders in the 1800s. So sit back and relax. Oh, and by the way, you can call in and talk to her as well. Here's the number, 657-383-0416. Okay, I'm gonna give it to you again because you need a piece of paper and a pencil to talk to her. 657-383-0416. So I know that this is going to be a fascinating show because it's definitely a fascinating subject. Hi, Robin. How are you? Karen, I'm great. Thank you for inviting me. You're most welcome. This is a great opportunity. So I guess... I'm sorry, go uh, yeah. ahead. No, I was going to, I welcome all questions. So just putting that out there, please call if you have a question. Cool. And so now I'm, I want to ask you a little bit. I did a brief um, talk about you. I want to know how you got in to um, spiritualism and how you got in to researching this subject we're going to talk about. Well, my goodness. Well, uh, the subject, the African-American spiritualist, is dear to my heart because straight out of college, I joined the Peace Corps, and my first country was Chad. My second country was Senegal, Um, uh, both, of course, um, countries uh, in Africa. And the other thing that I want to say is that 2012, I had my mitochondrial DNA done and they, my mitochondrial DNA placed me about 50,000 years ago in the South of Chad. And when you think it was such a remote country and uh, that I, my village was in the South of Chad And my DNA was placed in an area, not where I was assigned, but an area I went through frequently. And so spiritually, I have to say I feel like a homing pigeon. And I've gone back and and back to, uh, to my home. You know, and it may it may have taken me. I'm a slow learner. It took me fifty thousand years to get back to Chad, 
but I did. So I'll just I will just say that the um, the other piece is you know getting into spiritualism. I I got into spiritualism because I had a vision, and I had a vision. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, that of Lilydale and uh, my horses, one in spirit and one who was still on the earth plane at that time came under one came under my right arm one came under the other arm and all of a sudden I was at the gates of Lilydale it was snowing and they took me through and it was an amazing experience and so for the first time that summer then it was 2002 I went to Lilydale and looked around and I felt home and then eventually I found fellowships of the spirit and uh, then, you know, started studying, studying, studying healing, and then mediumship. But I, uh, one day, not long ago, a few years ago, I was uh, uh, doing a sermon at the Quincy Church of, the uh, First Spiritualist Church of Quincy in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I talked about Sojourner Truth in my in my lecture and someone after church said why don't we hear about the african-americans and she was an african-american and she was standing there with some other friends of hers who were african-american and they said yeah why you know we didn't know sojourner truth was a spiritualist and i said well you just heard so and they said, well, we know you teach a, a class on the history of spiritualism. What about a class on African-American spiritualists? Could you do that? And I said, okay. And just about two weeks later at the Swampscott Church of Spiritualism, another woman there said to me, gee, Robin, uh, will you do uh, a workshop? can you create a workshop on African-American spiritualists for African-American History Week? And I said, all right. So I had two knocks on my door, and I said, all right, then I'll, I'll do that. And I started reading pretty much everything I could, and then different books seemed to pop up on Amazon.com. Oh, you'd be, we think you'd, you know how it happens. We think you'd be interested in this. And I'd look, and it would be an African about an African American spiritualist. So you know, and things start falling into your lap that you should move forward. And so I did. So yes. I created a PowerPoint, and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the pe- the same people I talk about in the PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. And stop me. Stop me at any time. <laughs> so, um, before I talk, I'm going to talk. Uh, hopefully, if I time this well, Sojourner Truth, William Cooper Nell, Harriet E. Wilson, Pashal. Some people say Pascal. Pashal B. Beverly Randolph, and Henry Louis Ray. But before I talk about them, I like to talk about. Amy and Isaac Post, because Amy and Isaac Post were pillars, you know, the first people who supported 
uh, the founders of spiritualism, the Foxes uh, in Rochester, and they lived at 36 Sophia Street, is the uh, Sojourner Truth knew them. William Cooper now lived with them for a while, as did the Fox sisters. Kate and Maggie lived there with their parents at Amy and Isaac Post home, which was a uh, um, a stop on the Underground Railroad. And so all of these people are tied together. They also knew William Lloyd Garrison who published The Liberator, where William Cooper now worked. Yeah, he and, was big in the movement. Uh, he, he was very big, a spiritualist. Mm-hmm. They knew Cora Hatch uh, when her name was uh, Cora Hatch Daniels. They, uh, William Cooper now knew, and Pashal Randolph uh, personally knew uh, Andrew Jackson Davis. And then there's a family of abolitionists who knew them as well. Uh, The Hutchinson family singers out of uh, New Hampshire, and they were out of the same town as Harriet E. Wilson. So fascinating to see how it all comes together. And they lived in a town that that had one of the earliest abolitionist meetings. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison went up there. And, uh, of course, many of them, Sojourner Truth early on, met Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Mm-hmm. So um, there, are, there are many people who are brought together. All of these folks I just mentioned were brought together by Amy and Isaac Post. So all, I will just yeah. put out there. They were all seem to be interconnected at some point, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You can just draw lines and circles uh, around everyone. So it's pretty fascinating. And the post so, had um, a big circle, right? I mean, they had uh, a well-known circle that they conducted. They had a bit. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. Um, the Rochester Circle, William Cooper now was introduced to the Fox sisters there. He became a believer. And, uh, of course, Andrew Jackson Davis visited them. The Fox sisters had started it. And um, interesting, a lot of people asked me if Frederick Douglass was a spiritualist. Uh, he, you know, he was in Rochester, uh, had and was often supported er, very early on by Amy and Isaac Post as he's publishing the North Star. And he said, you know, he'd gone to the circle, but he just did not believe in spiritualism. So I'll just put that out there because yeah. many people ask, and uh, it's, it's just simply that. So, uh May I um, interject one thing yeah. about this circle? So people know this is a, was a really high-powered circle. And also you and I talked about this, that Susan B. Anthony was also in that circle. Yes. Even though she uh, never professed belief outwardly mm-hmm. in spiritualism. But Susan B. Anthony's, Susan B. Anthony's father knew Amy and Isaac Post very well. Okay. And so it, it, 
And so all of them are brought together through familial ties, um, ties of Rochester, abolition, um, women's suffrage. Uh, Amy and Isaac Post were also uh, stridently interested in Native American land rights, as was Cora Hatch and, um, and uh, her second husband, Daniel. So a lot of, you have a lot of um, their home, although we think of Hydesville where, you know, um, the advent of, of spiritualism was, you know, um, in uh, March 31st, 1848 with the Fox sisters hearing the rap. Uh, and that's a crossroads of sorts, but the continuing crossroads was at the house of Amy and Isaac Post, I would say. Thank you. I, Thank you I, for um, I would Yep. Thank you. Um, so, so I'll um, move into Sojourner Truth. And Sojourner Truth, uh, it's interesting to know that she was born in approximately she thought 1797, and she's born into slavery at Swartkill, uh, New York. New York was uh, had slavery um, at, at that time, and I think it was not abolished until 1826, I believe. I believe 1826. Um, so she was sold at auction. So she's born into slavery. She's sold uh, into auction at 1806. And gave birth to her first child in 1815. And she was a powerhouse in, in so many ways. And yet she grew up, unfortunately, uh, a, a slave. And um, she had fallen in love with another slave. But the slave whom, with whom she fell in love, Robert, he was, a, he was, you know, it's a horrible word, owned by a man from a, a neighboring farm. And uh, Robert's owner forbade their relationship because uh, at the time when uh, two slaves had a child, the owner of the female slave would keep the child. And he didn't want Robert to have a child with another slave owner's uh, slave. I mean, it's a horrible concept to even begin to imagine. So one day, Robert visited Sojourner Truth, whose uh, birth name was Isabella Baum. And uh, the owner beat him almost to death. And Truth never saw Robert with whom she was in love with. He died uh, some years later. And then eventually Truth married Thomas, an older slave. So Jenner Truth had five children. James died in childhood. Diana uh, was born in 1815. And he was either fathered by Robert or John Dumont, in which case if it's John Dumont, uh, she would have been raped. 
Uh, she had Peter in 1821, Elizabeth in 1825, and Sophia around 1826. So, um, in any case, she about, let's see, she was sold to four more owners after she was first sold at auction in 1806. And, um, uh, she finally walked to free to her freedom in 1826. She was carrying her infant daughter, Sophia at that time. She settled in New York city. Imagine until 1843. And at that time she changed her name from Isabella Baumfrey to Sojourner Truth. And she announced that she had spoken to God you know, she was a medium. Spirit spoke to her and told her that her job was to go around preaching. She was to preach uh, abolition, and she was to preach women's suffrage and suffrage for everyone. And she was told to speak the truth. And she very clearly said, you know, that the spirit world or God had told her to do this. So over the next several years, Sojourner Truth lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she'd purchased a home. She later lived in Ohio. She traveled around the East and Midwest preaching for human rights. And it's very interesting. She was not literate. And when she did uh, sort of write her autobiography, she dictated it. And records say that William Lloyd Garrison, also a spiritualist, uh, 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 he published it for her. And she continued traveling around. Of course, she met Amy and Isaac Post, Parker Pillsbury, Francis Dana Gage, Wendell Phillips, Laura Haviland, Lucretta Mott, Susan B. Anthony, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, just among a few of the famous abolitionists and women suffragists. So she supported herself by selling portraits. And the portraits, one, was of herself captured, I sell the shadow to support the substance. I sell the shadow to support the substance. She also received income from the sale of her biography. And uh, it was her friend, Olive Gilbert, who uh, wrote the dictated form of her autobiography. And um, so she continued on lecturing. And she also raised funds, a, a big thing which she did, she raised funds for African-American soldiers in the Civil War for their uniforms and uh, for their food, uh, imagine, and because a lot of them were expected to be self-supporting. And so she, uh, although many of her lectures were free, she also raised money from lectures and from these cards and uh, just kept traveling and traveling. Uh, she traveled pretty much most of her most of her life, and she didn't. She transitioned 
1888 in Battle Creek, Michigan, which was her her final home. She had uh, an amazing, amazing life. Um, But I would like to say that in 1856, she first went to Battle Creek, Michigan, again, where she would later uh, transition into the spirit world. And she stayed with what was called at the time a radical Quaker group called the Friends of Human Progress. And the next year, so 1857, Sojourner Truth moved to Michigan and bought a home in the nearby settlement of Harmonia. And that was said to have been a spiritualist community. Uh, So she was really on a, a national human rights crusade. She met with Abraham Lincoln. And there's a very interesting photo of her with Abraham Lincoln, but it's, text, it's a doctored photo. Yes, in, um, let's see, October 29th, 1864, apparently, uh, no, she wrote a letter that day um, where she dictated the letter. But in that letter, she, she spoke about a recent, a visit to Washington, D.C. to meet with Abraham Lincoln. And the photo that uh, many people have seen uh, is actually Sojourner Truth and it's Abraham Lincoln, but they two were, uh, were put together, their images, to create one photograph. Uh, but they were never photographed together in, in any case. Um, Sojourner Truth just continued crusading for equal treatment for black and white passengers on local streetcars. Imagine. And uh, she gave a very famous speech in 1851, Ain't I a Woman Speech at the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. So here's a a woman born into slavery. Her voice, uh, they had attempted, of course, to take her voice away. And here is someone who stands up at a convention, hundreds of people, and speaks. And she does it well. And remembering that she's illiterate, she would not have her prepared speech written, but speaks inspirationally, divinely, and powerfully. Uh after after the end of the uh, Civil War, she worked in Washington, D.C. as a counselor and educator for former slaves through the Freedmen's Relief Association uh, and through the uh, Freedmen's Hospital. We know that in eight, 1981, Truth was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. 1986. Uh, the U.S. Postal Service issued a commemorative postage stamp. 1997, the NASA Mars Pathfinder named its robotic rover Sojourner Truth. And finally, in 2009, a statue of Sojourner Truth was placed in the U.S. Capitol's Hall of Emancipation. Now, I would like to read a speech to you, which I find extremely extremely powerful, and, and, you know, keeping in mind that Sojourner Truth 
gave this address uh, that was not written. And she spoke June 12, 1863, at a meeting held at the State Sabbath School Convention held in Battle Creek, Michigan. And several, you know, just sort of setting the, setting the stage uh, as a journalist had recorded. Several speakers had already spoken, and they hear a clear, distinct voice coming from the head of stairs saying, is there an opportunity now that I might say a few words? The moderator seemed for a moment as if hesitating to grant the opportunity as perhaps he did not know the speaker. Seen the dilemma of the moderator and speaker, Reverend T.W. Jones rose And he addressed the moderator and said, this speaker is Sojourner Truth. Well, now the moderator paired the woman asking to speak very humbly to the famous Sojourner Truth. 500 people were instantly on their feet in this hall. And they were prepared to give her their most earnest and respectful attention. They said that at Henry Ward Beecher, one of the most famous uh, orators of the time, had been there, she would have eclipsed him. She, so Sojourner True started. She said, the spirit of the Lord has told me to avail myself of the opportunity to speak to so many children assembled together of the great sin of prejudice against color. Children, who made your skin white? Was it not God? Who made mine black? Was it not the same God? Am I to blame, therefore, because my skin is black? Does it not cast a reproach? on our maker to despise a part of his children because he has been pleased to give them a black skin? Indeed, children, it does. And your teachers ought to tell you so. And root up, if possible, the great sin of prejudice against color from your minds. While sad school teachers know of this great sin, And not only do not teach their pupils that it is a sin, but too often indulge in it themselves. Can they expect God to bless them or the children? Does not God love colored children as well as white children? And did not the same Savior die to save the one as the other? If so children must know that if they go to heaven, they must go there without their prejudice against color, for in heaven, black and white are one in the love of Jesus. Now, children, remember what Sojourner Truth has told you, and thus get rid of your prejudice and learn to love colored children that you may all, may be all the children of your Father who is in heaven. And with that, she sat back down. 
an amazing, amazing person. Uh, I find her story inspirational and her ability for public speaking phenomenal. Um, Karen, did you have any questions about her before I move on to William Cooper now? Well, um, I, I did have something that I think she was, um, she did something with uh, Grant as well, General Grant, something. I think she was helping out somewhere. Um, I can't think of that off the top of my head. Uh, but I'll look into it. She no, here we go. She was um she she remained politically active trying to secure land grants for former slaves from the federal government. She mm-hmm. met with President Grant um to um so he could help in some way. But she was always active trying to do things for the community. Yeah. How she had the energy, especially to travel at that time, I can't imagine. No, I can't imagine either. She was really a strong woman, wasn't she? And she just was yeah. courageous. I find her very courageous. I think uh, she seemed fearless. And yeah. I find, you know, when I have fear about things, I think of Sojourner Truth and I think, how did she do this? How did she see this? So, I don't know. She's an inspiration to me. She really is. She is. She was some kind of uh, human being with a good heart and a good soul, I'm sure. Absolutely. Good. So, as we move on, Mm -hmm. uh, Boston had a revolution, as we know. uh, And then... We say Boston had a second revolution, and they say it was centered on the north slope of Beacon Hill, where the African-American community of the 19th century Boston led the city and the nation in the fight against slavery and injustice. These remarkable men and women, together with their allies, were leaders in the abolition movement, the Underground Railroad the Civil War, and the early struggle for equal rights and education. And front and center, we meet William Cooper now, who was born in 1816 and lived until 1874. And most of his life, he lived in Boston. And you can see the house, uh, one of the homes he lived in while he was in Boston, And it's on the African-American Freedom Trail. And his home was a stop on the Underground Railroad, but of course it was. So, William Cooper now tells or told the story of uh, an early memory he had of seeing um, William Lloyd Garrison Uh, being lynched by a mob in Boston. A mob had stormed the offices of the, where the printing press was for the, one of the most uh, prolific, powerful, most read, one of the earliest, most read 
newspapers on abolition, which was the Liberator. And a mob tore him out of, tore, you know, try, basically tore him apart. He ended up being saved. Uh, the mayor of Boston saved him, but people wrote about the time that it was the mayor's uh, henchmen who uh, were uh, want, did not want abolition, and so th- uh, they were part of the lynch mob. But William Cooper now, as a young boy, witnessed uh, this man, a, a white man, being lynched for supporting black men. And he was really taken with this. Later on in life, he apprenticed and then went to work for Garrison. And uh, he learned to publish The Liberator as well. He did a lot of writing and a lot of public speaking. And early on, when William Cooperell was at the African Meeting House School, uh, which he graduated from in 1869, he had won an award for his scholarship at this African-American school. There was segregation at the time. And there was a huge award ceremony from all the children in Boston who had won this academic award. He'd won it for his school. But he was told you can't go to the award ceremony and receive your award because black people are not allowed at the sem- at the um, ceremony. And he was so clever. They were serving dinner at that ceremony. So, so William Cooper now got a job as a waiter at the award ceremony. And although he was a waiter, he used to say, at least I got to be there. I got to be at my own award ceremony. And uh, that, as we know, that was never enough for William Cooper now, who worked and succeeded in his lifetime to desegregate not only schools in Boston. He was successful, not single-handedly, but he was successful in doing that, and he was successful as well as desegregating um, theaters, opera houses, and public transportation. Pretty, uh, a pretty amazing feat. And he is uh, a lot of people who don't know about spiritualism best know him because he was an historian and he uh, William Cooper now was the first published African American historian he was uh, a leader in campaigns to desegregate public facilities and the railroad so he succeeded in gaining desegregation of the Boston Railroad in 1843 and the performance halls in 1853. He also was an integrationalist. He fought repatriation to Africa of African-Americans. 
So as we may recall, the country of Liberia was created for repatriated African Americans and um, uh, now did not believe in that. You know, he said, they're here in America. So let, and we are here. Let us stay. Let us stay here. He worked again to integrate schools. He gathered 2,000 signatures from the black community, then to the state legislature. In 1855, segregation was ended in Boston schools. And we know that between then and the 1960s, the Boston schools ended up resegregating again. In 1854, he co-founded the Massasoit Guards, which was very interesting. Um, at the time, black people were not allowed to carry weapons. You couldn't carry a gun. And they had this, they had these Massasoit Guards of uh, African American. It was an independent military company, funded, of course, um, with private funding, and it was to protect fugitive slaves from slave catchers. And remember, uh, there was a fugitive slave law of 1850. So by 1854, they organized, and what they would do is they would keep guard at all hours. And they would post people at different, and now was part of this guard. They would post people at different corners and alert people if a slave catcher was in a neighborhood where some, where a former slave was being uh, 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 safely held, was living. And uh, they say that that worked very, very well. But that takes a lot of bravery, a great deal of bravery to go against the system at that time. Yes, it did. Um, Nell also was the first African-American federal civil service employee, and he worked as a clerk in the U.S. Postal Department in Boston. Now, this the next thing I'm going to say, I uh, have to say that I either – I was not taught as a child, or if I was taught, shame on me, I did not remember. But William Nell made sure that the history in the United States was documented. In 1858, he, um, he, I'm sorry, before 1858, he, in 1855, he published a book which included very specific information that Crispus Attucks was the first patriot to die in the Revolutionary War. Crispus Attucks was uh, half or it was an um, African American and Native American. Uh, according to records, he lived in Framingham, Massachusetts. But you know, when I, I learned about the, I learned about Bunker Hill, I learned about Paul Revere, I did not, I did not recall reading about the Patriots' addicts. And so William Cooper now brought this to the forefront and said, look it, 
was just another argument for abolition. Here are people who fought so bravely for America's freedom against the British. And you enslave people. They, they don't have the right to vote. And they died for a country that didn't give them any rights at all. And in the book that he wrote, The Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, with sketches of several distinguished colored persons, to which is added a brief, it's a long title, to which is added a brief survey of the condition and prospects of colored Americans. Interestingly, there's an introduction by Harriet Beecher Stowe and Wendell Phillips. So this was published uh, in part, of course, to commemorate the memory of Crispus Attucks and other uh, African Americans who fought and died in the in the uh, Revolutionary War, uh, and to help free slaves, uh, and you know, in uh, the abolition movement. Pretty uh, powerful. It's um, the, this book has amazing, very amazing uh, pictures in it, graphics. Also. Um, in this book, uh, William Cooper now had done studies, very interesting, interestingly, about what happened to black men after the Civil War and what happened to them after the War of 1812. And he wrote a book, Property Qualification or No Property Qualification, A Few Facts from the Record of Patriotic Services of the Colored Men of New York During the Wars of 1776 and 1812 with a compendium of their present business and property statistics. Now, what he found is that intergenerational wealth early on was often tied to the money that white soldiers at the end of the war were given the end of uh, the you know the war of 1776 or of 1812 were given at the end of the war a lot of them were given some uh, readjustment salaries, some, um, uh, some pensions, but none of the black people received this. So who, who fought in the war? It's amazing. Who fought in the war who's black and who's white? And now who owns property? And he found that white people created this intergenerational wealth because they had an extra income stream. And what we also find is that that continued after the Civil War. There's another funding stream that went to uh, white soldiers and not to black soldiers in the Civil War. And uh, uh, there, there's a lot written about about um, that funding stream and intergenerational wealth leading to issues around uh, poverty, uh, housing poverty, food poverty uh, that continues into 2020. 
And when I, you think that William Cooper now started this and brought it to life, I think is uh, quite, quite fascinating. So um, he wrote often to uh, Amy Post, and there are many, many letters that are preserved in uh, the University of Rochester in the uh, Amy and Isaac Post Historic Collection, which is online and people can access. And, uh, you know, he, uh, although now ended up marrying, there were many letters where he's, you know, sort of, whoa, woe is me, woe is me. Oh, geez, you know, you know, how is so-and-so, is so-and-so married, and on and on. Uh, so he was looking for a wife and hoping to get married, and he finally did. Um, in a letter to Amy Post, he mentions Harriet Wilson, very interestingly. And, uh, um, but he, he mentions, I've heard about this famous, uh, you know, uh, I think he called her a colored colored medium, but I've not met her yet. So William Cooper now is buried in the Forest Hill Cemetery, an, an, one of the garden cemeteries in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. And he did not get a gravestone until 1989. Uh, but finally, 1989, right? Re- very recent memory. Uh, people finally put a, a gravestone up for him. So any any thoughts before I move on to Harriet Wilson? Just one about the, uh, the source of the funding, you know, you talked about. Where did that Where did that come from? The, I mean, that he he. Uh, I'm he thinking the federal the, government. Okay. I th- I'm thinking the federal government. Okay. I was just curious because that's that's mm-hmm. fascinating. I've never heard of that. Mm-hmm. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, the same. You. It, you know, like a social, like a social security. Although you know, it's federal government. I believe it was. Uh, I could be wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I need to go back and take a look at the source. Uh, my curious. guess would be the federal government. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to Thank get you. back to you on that, Karen. Yeah. Thank you. Hold on. I will make a note. Source. Yeah, I'm curious. For white soldiers. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I will look into that. So, Harriet E. Wilson. Now, I'd like to tell people if after today you you only have time to read one one book about African American spiritualists. I I it's just my dear opinion. I read the book uh, written by Harriet E. Wilson called Our Nig or Sketches from the Life of a Free Black, and the version I like the best, banded version with additional notes and commentary, and they were added by Henry Louis Gates, Jr. and Richard J. Ellis. And it's uh, it's got uh, Harriet E. Wilson's book in it, a novel. She was, you know, in addition to being a very famous trans medium and public speaker and healer, and healer, 
she was an entrepreneur, and she was the first African-American female novelist, which is quite, quite amazing. And uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Richard Ellis uh, document that in this book, as well as many, many, I can't even imagine, uh, I don't know, over 100 pages of her link to spiritualism. So uh, Harriet E. Wilson was born in Milford, New Hampshire, March 15, 1825. She transitioned in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, in June, uh, June 28, 1900. And she was, a, again, uh, a, a powerhouse, an absolute, uh, an, an absolute powerhouse of a person. And while, while she uh, was a child, she was an indentured servant. Her mother... Uh, had dropped her off. Her father had passed away, and we think, and her mother, so her mother was white and her father was black, and her mom had dropped her off uh, to live with a family, and this family, they were ardent abolitionists. So maybe, you know, mom thought, oh, they're going to take care of her, but they abused her. And she was tortured. She uh, was a very young child and tortured for years until she could sort of get her walking papers, and and then she left. But uh, un- unfortunately, um, and she still had the strength to, to continue to heal others, to speak publicly. At a time when uh, a lot of women were afraid to speak. And she spoke in front of audiences of men and women. I mean, a very, very brave person. If you go to Milford, New Hampshire, there is a trail mapped out and a beautiful statue of Harriet Wilson and her uh, young son, George. Now, To date, no pictures exist of Harriet Wilson. Um, So the person who made the statue, it's a gorgeous statue, um, imagined what she would have looked like. And there are accounts saying that she was quite beautiful. And so the the statue is, is is a very beautiful woman. So I'll just put out this out there. As part of the trail where you can trace Harriet's footsteps, it has her school, it has the church where Harriet married her first husband, and uh, it it has many, 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 many uh, pieces concerning uh, Harriet Wilson uh, along this trail. Harriet Wilson. Uh, was quite sickly and ended up in the poorhouse, ended up putting her son in the poorhouse, George, 
And it's the reason, George is the reason she wrote the book and published it. We don't know where she got the funds to publish the book. Maybe she um, she got them on her own from selling this hair tonic. She sold this hair tonic, Mrs. H.E. Wilson's hair dressing, and she called it a hair regenerator. She said she uh, got the um, formula from a friend of hers. And interestingly, it was to restore graying hair to its original color. And Harriet Wilson was a savvy businesswoman. She advertised her hair tonic in newspapers throughout New England, New York, New Jersey, including she put an ad in the New York Times. And she had bottles printed up with her name and uh, hair regenerator. So I find that very interesting. When she became a medium, she published uh, she published um, little tidbits in the Boston Banner of Light, which was the longest running spiritualist newspaper. Now Harriet was progressive in in many many ways, and one of the ways she was progressive is she was a teacher a teacher in the Spiritualist Lyceum. And she also, and I'll just bookmark that for a moment, she also directed two plays within Spiritualist groups, and she performed in a cross-dressing role as Tom Carberry in the play The Spirit of 76. Mm. And... uh, It's amazing. I mean, what guts she had. Uh, You know, taking on the part. Taking the part, that's right, of gender roles. It's it's quite amazing. Even though it was in Boston and Boston was progressive still. So Harriet went on to uh, be a teacher in progressive lyceum. Number one, 1873, Progressive Lyceum number two in 1879. And in 1874, while she's still at Progressive Lyceum one, she spoke publicly about abuses she felt she had received from other spiritualists. She vented her grievances at the treatment she received in Boston. And I imagine she didn't call them racist. I imagine uh, that this treatment came from them. It came uh, stemmed in racism. So she left the Boston Lyceum One and went to Lyceum Two. And there, she was a great teacher, a great speaker. She participated in exchange programs with the main lyceums in New York City. I'm sure that caused a lot of jealousy. She had a lot to share. She wrote lesson plans for the students in Lyceum, and she called them the temple within. And she freely shared these lesson plans with others. She was quite a famous Transmedium, and in the banner of light, she she advertised herself 
as colored medium. Others wrote about her, calling her the eloquent and earnest colored trans medium. She participated in semi-annual conventions. She was at the same uh, conferences with Andrew Jackson Davis. A lot of people think she shared the podium with him. I have not found evidence that she and Andrew Jackson spoke at the same time uh, or did mediumship on the podium at the same time. But there are uh, many accounts of it, um, but no first sources. So, But she was in, at, at some of the same conventions. Uh, she, interestingly, gave an address in favor of labor reform and the education of children and spiritualist doctrine, certainly um, uh, a subject near and dear to the heart of Andrew Jackson Davis, who started the Children's Lyceum Movement with his wife, uh, his second wife, Mary. In 1867, Harriet Wilson spoke to a group of 3,000 people at the Great Spiritualist Camp Meeting in Pierpont Grove, Melrose. She was invited to speak there. It's very interesting. Uh, Mrs. Pierpont uh, was was one of the women who sat with Maggie Fox the first time she presented the spirit raps publicly at Corinthian Hall. So to give you an idea of the stature she had, she's invited to the Pierpont Grove to speak to 3,000 people. And uh, generally she spoke in trance, but she's invited by one of the, you know, the Pierponts. They're not the royalty as Fox, but they're, you know, there's a step down from, the royalty of the Fox family, uh, which is very, very interesting. Uh, In 1873, Harriet worked with others to establish a a new spiritualist society in Mansfield and Foxborough, Massachusetts, but those communities fell through. Uh, They say she gave an address in 1868, the 20th anniversary in the Boston Music Hall. Now, Harriet Wilson decides to start her own lyceum, but she's smart. She does not call herself a conductor, and she does not use the word lyceum in the title of her school, remembering that at that time, in 1883 is when she, excuse me, <clears throat> she starts her lyceum. Only men and only white men were conductors of, of lyceum. So not only is she not white and she's not a man, she's a black woman and she starts her own lyceum. Again, she doesn't call herself a conductor and she doesn't use the word lyceum. Very interesting. And the school is advertised. It includes white children of the liberal-minded in the Boston Ladies' Aid Parlors. And uh, so this, she got into trouble 
and uh, the teachers were trance mediums. They spoke to the children while in trance, and that was a practice very much found upon by white lyceum practitioners. Now, Karen, you know, as far as I have read, and feel free to correct me, but I have not read anything even to this day of a, a rule that says you cannot speak to children while you're in trance. I've never read that. Have you? No, I've, I've never read it. I think it's um, <clears throat> just a cultural or society thing because I've never read it. No, I've, I've never read it either. So, And you know that uh, early on they had a lot of rules. You know, Andrew Jackson Davis had a Lyceum manual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I've shared this with you. In it, he talks about seeing, having visions of children in the Summerland. And I was completely dismayed when I read that it, his vision had blonde hair, blue-eyed children. And I I was disappointed at that. So, um, so. What happened was she didn't have her, she did not have her lyceum very long. And uh, in 1883, what was called an ad hoc inspection by senior members of Boston Children's Progressium, Progressive Lyceum Number One. Now, remembering that's the lyceum she taught at. At the time when she complained that Boston spiritualists were hideous to her. So she was at that lyceum and she left after that. But these men came into her lyceum without being announced. And they critically, they reported what was considered critical remarks about her teaching. And they took the school away from her. They've removed the school from her. So we imagine that the school was removed from her because she's a woman, because she was black. And another thought was uh, maybe because she spoke in trance, perhaps, when we think so many things in life come down to economics. And she was receiving money from donors for her lyceum. And so that revenue stream was taking revenue away from the other lyceums. So just as we say, just saying, right? Mm, just, yes. saying. just saying. Any thoughts before I move? Just One saying. More. We move on. Yes, one about Pierpont. Where exactly was that located? In, uh, let me see, Pierpont Grove was, where am I here? I think it's in around Malden. Okay. In, uh, Massachusetts, sorry. Okay. okay. Around Malden, Massachusetts. All right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I found, I have the address. I found it one once I was looking up. And it's sort of I think the um Grove 
Oh, no, Melrose. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Melrose, Massachusetts. I found the grove once on an old map in an old, in an old book, um, and I think it spanned a couple of towns. And just one more note about the Pierponts, not Mr. and Mrs., and I apologize for not having their first names on the top of my head, uh, not mom and dad, but their son wrote the song Jingle Bells. I just like that. That's interesting. That that's kind of, that's an interesting fact. Yes. Lots of tidbits. Lots and lots of mm-hmm. tidbits. So, all right. So moving on to Pashal, some people say Pascal, Beverly Randolph, who was a trans medium. 1825 to 1875. Fascinating man. He was born a free man. He was an author, prolific author. If you just Google him, you will find on the internet, I don't know how many books, maybe 20 books that he wrote and published. He was an author, a prosecution, famous medium, abolitionist, and an African-American nationalist. Born a free man in New York City at five points of mixed race, he established the earliest known prosecution order in the United States. He brought it to the United States. You know, when you think an African-American did that in the 1800s, that's quite a feat, and that it took off to this day. Um. Interestingly, in the 1800s, he used breathwork in his healing practice. He gave lectures on how to use your breath to change your attitude, to help you into trance, to, tra- um, to get you out of a mood, to help calm you. And I find that, I mean... I find that very, very fascinating. Now, saying that, one of the reasons that a lot of spiritualists, you don't read, well, you do see, sometimes you see him, of course, in the Banner of Light and other spiritualist journals of the time. You will see him, instead of Pashal Beverly Randolph, you will see B. Randolph. And that's him, P.B. Randolph, um, which he frequently went by or people referred to him as. Now, another reason we don't hear a lot about him is because he was America's foremost promoter of what he called affectional alchemy, which is magic-inspired eroticism. So... Uh, And so early on, um, a whole contingent of spiritualists said he doesn't fit the mainstream mm, profile that we're trying to project. And so they pretty much threw him out. Some did. Pierpont did not. He spoke at Pierpont Grove also. He attracted thousands. Thousands of people. 
1848, he spent three weeks with Andrew Jackson Davis in Hartford, Connecticut. Davis, at the time, admitted uh, Randolph to his harmonial brotherhood. Medium to transmedium, right? Mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson yes. Davis, transmedium, Randolph, transmedium, and they then were part of the same organization, the Harmonial Bro- Brotherhood, which I think is interesting. In trance, he gave thousands of speeches on temperance, abolition, women's equality, women's choice to use birth control, and freedmen's dignity. Now, interestingly, unlike William Cooper now, Randolph lectured to African Americans and urged them to emigrate to India because Randolph had experienced intense discrimination because of his skin color. And he believed the Negro, as he wrote, the Negro is destined to extinction in the United States. I mean, imagine having that feeling in your heart and trying to get other African Americans to emigrate to India to save the race. He really believed, uh, he didn't didn't believe in repatriation of African-Americans to Africa. He thought India would be safer for them. Um, He did, he was not an integrationist in the United States. And he believed in creating separate developments and even separate towns in the United States, especially for freed slaves after the Civil War. Saying all of that, as a young man, um, his mom had died early and he wasn't sure who his father was. Um, He was a merchant sailor and he sailed in England. He sailed to England, France, Germany, all through the middle and far east, including Persia and Africa. So he was a well, well, well traveled man. Towards Tingley, uh, uh, he had his own emblem. And if you uh, look, you can see it in the book, Pashal Beverly Randolph, a 19th century black American spiritualist, Rosicution, and sex magician. And this book is written by John Patrick Devaney. It, uh, it, it, in this book, it talks about his life. And you see this symbol. It's called the winged globe. And he has so many symbols within his symbol. There's a circle. Uh, you know, so many, um, not just spiritualists, but religions around the world use the circle as a symbol use a, a triangle coming uh, pointing up and the inverted triangle pointing down earth energy coming up energy from the spirit world 
uh, the universe coming down and then meeting quite often in the heart space. The, um, the, the earth that he draws has meridians, latitude, longitudinal lines. His word is try, T-R-Y, try. And it's balanced by the symbol of fire on the right, the east, and an anchor for water on the west uh, by many Native, Native Americans. So he had a, a fascinating life. Early on, he wrote a book about pre-Adamite Adam. Uh, he published a book in 1863, and in it, he'd received information in trance telling him that humans existed on earth before the, quote, biblical Adam. And I find that fascinating. He wrote many books on how to do mediumship. And back in the 1800s, he did. And uh, Clairvoyance, 1867, Clairvoyance, How to Produce It, A Guide to Clairvoyance. 1868, Seership, The Magnetic Mirror. It's interesting, he imported mirrors to the United States, and then he taught people how to use them um, to see. He also imported hashish, which he advertised openly in uh, local newspapers. And yet, in 1872, he wrote a book about the evils of the tobacco habit. Uh, very interesting. Uh, he wrote an 1870 book, in 1874, a book about love, women, and marriage. He was married twice. When he married his second wife, he did not tell her that he still had a first wife. He never divorced his first wife. And uh, he told his second wife he was a widow. At the end of his life, uh, there are many accounts that he committed suicide. However, years after he transitioned into the spirit world, a man wrote an article saying that his friend on his deathbed confessed, on his deathbed confessed to murdering Randolph and that, it, you know, he led people to uh, believe it was a suicide so he wouldn't go to jail for killing him. So it's interesting. Um, I don't know the truth, but I found that that interesting when so many people think he actually had committed suicide. So um, moving on. Oh, also, in, at the beginning of my at our of our conversation, I talked about the Hutchinson family singers. Yes, they were like the band track connected. Yes. You know, they went town to town. Um, the Hutchinson family housed Randolph, 1874 to 1875. A branch of them uh, had moved out to California, and Randolph had gone out to California and lived with them. Andrew Jackson Davis had a vision on High Rock, which is in Lynn, Massachusetts, land owned by the Hutchinson family, uh, house 
that they owned is still on the property. It's on a granite hill in Lynn that's embedded with quartz. And so Andrew Jackson Davis somehow was guided there and had visions of the Universal Congress of Souls and wrote about it. So um, the Hutchinson family were very open to spiritualists. And uh, they let John Murray Spear build his God machine up on the uh, up on their High Rock Hill in Lynn as well. Was the Hutchinson family spiritless as well? Ah, uh, I a good question. I know I don't know if they were front and center. It would appear that they were at least at least a contingent of them seem to have been uh, spiritualist. They attended, uh, it appears they attended seances routinely, were friends with, with Andrew Jackson Davis, Randolph, John Murray Spear. So I imagine that it, they probably were. Um, they were very powerful abolitionists. And what's fascinating about this family uh, is that, um, you know, they went town to town speaking, and they were one of the earliest um, performing groups who could speak, not speak, sing or perform in front of what they called promiscuous audiences, an audience with, with men and women, because they were considered so wholesome. There were... Um, men and women, brothers and sisters in the group. I think one sister and brothers in the group. And they were just a, you know, gosh darn wholesome family. They started interjecting abolitionist uh, lyrics into their songs. And uh, eventually south of the Mason-Dixon line, they became hated. Uh, When when um, Frederick Douglass wanted to tour Europe and give lectures with the Hutchinson family singers. William Coopernell went to Rochester, lived with Amy and Isaac Post, and he took over the publication of the North Star for him so he could go on the lecture circuit. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there too. Thank you. So, yes, you're welcome. So the last person I want to talk about lived in New Orleans, a town dear to my heart, um, Henry Louis Ray. And Henry Louis Ray was a powerhouse civil rights activist. And he wrote what are called the Grand Jean or Grand Jean, Grand Jean registers. And they are mediumship registers written from 1858 to 1877. And they document the mediumship going on in New Orleans before the Civil War and through it and after. And uh, we know more about this because it was only a few years ago these registers which had been written in French were uh, translated into English to make them more accessible for the English speaking uh, 
uh, world. So uh, Henry Louis Ray was a medium and a leader of the Cirque Harmonique, which was a francophone seance circle in New Orleans. And his father, interestingly enough, was Bartholomew Ray, who had emigrated from Cuba. And his family had been from what was called Saint-Dominique, which, which is the country of Haiti. And he was called, as was Henry Louis Ray, an homme de couleur libre, uh, a free black man. And Henry, Henry Ray's dad was a slave owner uh, in, in and around New Orleans. Uh, so Henry Ray married Adele Crocker from the famous, uh, a famous New Orleans family. And uh, it's interesting, Lee, that although many people in the dominant culture of spiritualists believe that one's race remained with a person in the spiritual spheres, the message is that race circle received from spirit they were told that the spirit world was without race which is fascinating I mean that's a belief I hold true to be true but it's just a belief that resonates with me but I find it interesting that that came out um, very clearly in their circle um, let's see. Oh, the, um, in addition, the, um, uh, the registers, the Grand Jean registers written in French, uh, they were very interesting because they listed the seance details, including what mediums were present, what the messages were, seance protocol, and the circle members, occurrences that happened during each seance, and questions to avoid asking the spirit world. I'd like to read, uh, read these and find out what questions they thought inadvisable to ask spirits around, around them. Uh, interestingly, um, they also brought through the spirits who came to their circle, brought through a, a strong belief in reincarnation. And uh, mainstream spiritualism does not adhere to um, reinc- a belief in reincarnation. And as we know, this has caused uh, split uh, the growth of independent churches uh, in in the spiritualist religion, that's one of the reasons um, some people split because of reincarnations. Others split because they want uh, to be more more Christian spiritualists. Anyway, so um, the son of Antoine Bouclay, uh, Francois Petit Bouclay, uh, were both. Uh, in in service to the government, and both were Jean de Couleur Libre, and uh, 
He was Louisiana's black state treasurer for 10 years during Reconstruction. And we know that after Reconstruction, uh, even though there were congressmen who were black, uh, they were uh, they were not reelected after re uh, after Reconstruction, and uh, when the South uh, began more segregation and discrimination, um, Jim Crow laws and um, the start of the KKK. So Francois, Henry Ray's friend, was a medium and a member of the Cercle Monique. And he was a curator of the seance registers for 50 years, uh, the registers. Now, we, the registers continued because his daughter married a Frenchman, René Grandjean. That's why they're called the Grandjean registers. Um, because they're named the last name of De Boucler, Ray's friend, uh, daughter's husband. If you can bear with me and follow that. Um, unfortunately, when Rene, a white Frenchman, Grand Jean, uh, he was born in France, when he married a Sita. Du uh, Boucler, the daughter of Francois Du Boucler. Um, interracial marriage in the South was not legal, and so they had to move to Jamaica. And uh, these seance registers uh, were preserved. Anyway, Henry Louis Ray was in the National Guard, first for the South, but then when Louisiana was liberated by the Northern troops, then he was a soldier for the North. And now we're going to move just quickly to how he met Cora, Cora Hatch. Now we know Cora Hatch had, you know, very famous trance medium. Cora Hatch Daniels Tap in Richmond. She had four husbands. Her second husband, Daniels, was an uh, abolitionist. Uh, he was a uh, military commander, and uh, he was a spiritualist, Colonel Nathan Daniels. Colonel Nathan Daniels campaigned for black male suffrage. He, uh, again, was a Union Army white commander of the 2nd Louisiana Native Guards out on Ships Island during the Civil War and occupation of New Orleans. And he, uh, in his diary, he talks about being arrested, uh, although he wasn't uh, technically charged with anything. But they gave him, they gave him uh, some flack because Daniel thought that the uh, Black Creole Regiment underneath him that he uh, that's a horrible term, uh, who he worked with and uh, deserved um, a habitat, a home, just like the white, just like the white soldiers. And so he built, he got lumber and he built them a barracks. And uh, he was reprimanded for that in any case. Um, but he became friends with 
uh, Henry Ray, who became a captain, and Velmore. Now, Velmore is a famous medium in New Orleans, and uh, he started out in uh, doing voodoo, but after several people from the north, the Banner of Light, came down and he attended some of their seances, he became a spiritualist. Anyway, um, Daniels returned up north, and he met Cora Hatch. They married. Matter of fact, they married in Georgetown, and Pierpont uh, was a minister, and he married them at uh, someone's home in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., so there are a lot of connections that just keep on building here. Anyway, Cora and Colonel Nathan Daniels, who knew Henry Louis Ray, um, because he was not only in his command, but in his diary, Cora Hatch's husband had written that Henry Louis Ray had gone to him for meeting, for a reading. And for several readings, and that he was an amazing evidential medium, and so they became they became close friends. And when Colonel Nathan Daniels was reassigned to in 1867 to New Orleans, he moved there with Cora and their eight-month-old daughter Henrietta. And uh, he's, he worked in New Orleans then and with uh, Cora. And um, two weeks, within two weeks of one another, uh, Daniels, Cora's husband, died, I believe, of cholera. And her daughter died, old daughter. They both transitioned into spirit. And uh, Cora Daniels, was asked to read a poem that she had written. Henry uh, Ray had contacted her um, and asked her to read it at the one-year anniversary of a massacre in New Orleans. And what happened was July 30th, 1866, which was called Black Independence Day, 200 Black Union War veterans were killed on their way to a convention. And uh, another 238 people were killed and 46 were wounded. But 200 Black Union war vets were killed. Uh, It was called the New Orleans Massacre. It's also called the Mechanics Institute Massacre. And they, uh, they commemorated it a year after and Cora Hatch was asked to read her poem at the first anniversary. So Cora Hatch left New Orleans, went back up north, and as we know from our history, she was one of the founding members of the Natural, National Spiritualist Association. And uh, she founded, she went on to uh, found this uh, spiritualist church in Chicago. And uh, Henry Louis Ray went on, and he, uh, after the Civil War, let me see, 
And after reconstruction, after reconstruction, uh, as we know, a lot of things uh, took place. Uh, A lot of uh, racist organizations rose up after that. And um, uh, the uh, many people in the South who were racist uh, reclaimed what they were calling it. They were reclaiming the South back for themselves. And uh, a lot of people who had government jobs, as Henry Ray did, Dave Buclay did, they lost them. And so a lot of the African-Americans lost their jobs. The last job uh, Henry had was uh, in a hardware store. And then he transitioned into spirit. And he is buried uh, not very far from the very famous tomb of Marie Laveau, who was cousin to Val Moore, who sat in circle with Henry. But uh, Henry Louis Ray was uh, put into a tomb 18, uh, in 1894 at the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. Anyway. Uh, so that is pretty much the uh, sort of a, in a quick nutshell, um, the story of African American spiritualists. Did anyone have questions or? No, I think you actually you covered quite a bit of material about these uh, African American spiritualists. You did a lot of research and work, and you sh- should be commended. Well, thank you. Well, thank you, Karen. And so have yeah. you. And so have you. <laughs> and you. all of the people, yes, and all of the people who wrote the books were reading and are writing articles about these famous civil rights leaders. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, all of yes. the people who are continuing to share this information who are you know spending years and years of their own research time to publish a book for us to read to put together your radio show and your blog and uh you know so many of these pieces so we stand on the shoulders of an awful lot of people Yes, we do. Uh, Marilyn Autry is one of my favorite mm-hmm. authors. Marilyn, yes. Uh, and I've learned a great deal from her as well. Uh, mm-hmm. She's published many, many books. And uh, in a book, Spiritualism on the Move, uh, she talks about African-American spiritualists. Um, that's a great book. I highly recommend that. So That is a good book. I have that yeah. book in our church library here. Mm. So yes. I think I've 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 gone through uh, an awful lot in a short period of time, but that sort of that gives people a glimpse 
into uh, these brave, these brave um, heralds of spiritualism and uh, brave, brave, brave souls. So, well, I guess you know. I always try to ask my my uh, guest one last question before we part ways, and that is, who has inspired you on this path you're on? In general, in spiritualism, what, well, someone's still, someone still on the earth plane, a uh, Reverend Elaine Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, uh, has inspired me a great deal. And in the spirit world, Sojourner Truth, sort of, I look to when I'm afraid of something, and I think of her fearlessness, putting one foot in front of the other. Wonderful. And, yeah, um, and when I write and have to sit down and compose something, I look to Sir Roger Conan Doyle. That's wonderful. So, yeah, so, you know, when I have to be fearless, sojourner truth, and uh, for the the complete package – Elaine Thomas and to sit and write Sir Arthur Conan Doyle like that. I'm sure as soon as I hang up, I'll say, oh, but I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it always is. Right. Oops. Oops. I mean, so many, so many, uh, any of the people I talked about today. So, well, they were so fearless because look at all, all the obstacles that they had to go through to do the things that they yeah. did. You're right. And, and, you know, they walked out the door of their homes every day knowing there could be a racist remark, you know, mm-hmm. or that they had to sit in a segregated place on a railway car. Uh, it's, you know, pretty, sh- you know, shocking. And they continued on. They just continued on and didn't give up. They persevered. And I find that amazing. So. And they were so passionate in what they did. They were. Mm-hmm. And how they did it, but they, you know, they connected with others and they were, they led lives of service. Yes, they did. And I think that's so important. And, uh, you know, they, even though they were discriminated against horribly and abused and in cases tortured, they rose instead of saying, "Oh, woe is me, poor me, I'm miserable." They got out of their head into their heart and led lives. All of these people led lives of service, and they all they had did. gratitude. Mm-hmm. They all had gratitude. And uh, another teacher of mine, uh, Reverend Neil Zepkowski. 
has he sent me something once I was in a funk and he sent me something and the gist was you can't be have gratitude and have be miserable in the same moment so if I want to get out of a depressed move or mood or out of a funk or if I'm pitying myself I switch to gratitude and it works. I just start listing the things I'm grateful for and it works. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And all of the people I talked about today, they all had gratitude and you know, Maybe that's what helped them get up every morning. Maybe they started the day with thank you to the sun. You know, thank you for the water. Thank you for my food. Thank you for my friends and family. So, you know, thank you for my heartbeat and my breath. So when you think about it, I I find that pretty pretty impressive and pretty amazing and um, you know and I think there are people who have chosen the path to protest and you know go to the street and but that might not be for everyone but I encourage people if you want to do something and change the world and it's something I work on myself every day is changing my thoughts because thoughts are things. And as Elaine Thomas taught me, um, and, and she says, thoughts are things and emotion is the octave. Huh. Right? Yes. And she also taught me what you resist, you perpetuate. So don't resist, don't resist things, Robin, but pull your energy away from things pull your thoughts to other thoughts well and thank you I'm sorry Robin I didn't mean to interrupt you no and that's me a lot well well, you know we are so happy that you spent your day with us today and I know that you have helped all the truth seekers around the world to learn a little bit about these courageous people we talked about today. And I want to give you a gratitude of thanks as you go on your own path. Thank you. Well, Karen, thank you very, very much. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity to serve. Okay. And I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. That concludes our show for today. And as I always say to all you truth seekers out there, may you be the light that helps others see.